loyalty. It's a word that made me, I thought of as I read Mark 14. Loyalty is a, is a universally appreciated attribute, isn't it? Uh, this is something that we all care for. U.S. citizenship requires it. If you were a Boy Scout, you remember saying it in your oath. Gas stations, grocery stores, and retail chains reward you for being it. They have programs for it. Even mob bosses and Roman Caesars honor it. Loyalty is something that we value tremendously. Now, for those of you who may not know, the word comes from an old French word that actually means a legal obligation. Now, obviously, the, the word in our current usage has transcended just this idea of a mere legal obligation, and it's taken on the, the nuance of an expression of commitment from the heart to someone, something, or some kind of cause. And I think that's why we appreciate and value this concept that loyalty communicates to us, because it is an expression of a heart, of a heart's allegiance towards someone or towards something. It's one of the best virtues of who we are, and so when we see it, we value it. And, and that's what made um, reading Mark 14 for me one of the hardest chapters to stomach because Mark 14 exposes us. If you have read it this week, or we will read it in a little bit, you know that if anything Mark describes about the human heart, it is the antithesis of loyalty. Now, um, this is the longest chapter in Mark's gospel, it's 72 verses, and, 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 and usually when a chapter is this long, we will bypass it because just we, we want to get to more of the meat of it. And I just realized, now, number one, many of our people probably have not read this, God, this chapter this week. We try to encourage you to read ahead. We put the Scripture verse at the bottom of the bulletin to do that. But I realize not everyone does that, and in order for you to feel the weight of this chapter, I think we need to read it in its entirety. So, I'm just kind of prepping you that this is going to be a little bit longer of a morning reading because we're going to read all 72 verses, and because it is a powerful chapter, and I want you to feel, as I did Monday morning, the real weight of this particular text. Now, because there's so much going on, I want to give you some visual and audible things to look for and listen for as we read these 72 verses to help you track it. Number one, I want you to kind of keep your ears and eyes open for both Judas and Peter because they help us understand the structure of this very long chapter. The second thing I want you to track is how Judas and Peter help us understand the motives of the human heart. We're going to talk a lot about that. And then finally, how Jesus helps us understand the plan and love of God. So I'm going to leave that up on the screen to help you kind of have a cue as we read through this chapter. Well, with that being said, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we read the entirety of Mark chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Him by stealth and kill Him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, He was reclining at a table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over His head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. It's about a year's wage of the average worker. And they scolded her. But Jesus said to her, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. 
For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found that just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after the other, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born." And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with them Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. 
And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priests and to the chief priests, and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against them, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness saying, against them, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warning him, warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the reading of the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. There is so much in this chapter, so much that is going on. How do we even begin to make sense of it? And one way, just one way to realize that is, is that two of disciples of Jesus keep popping up. You may have heard that because I mentioned them to you. And that's Judas and, and Peter. Now, it's clear that Jesus is the centerpiece of Mark 14, like He's the centerpiece of the entire gospel, but you can't read very far between either without one of these two men, Judas or Peter, coming up again. Do you notice immediately, as soon as the passage breaks out in verse 4, we hear Judas chiming in. Now, we know it's Judas because in John's gospel, the parallel account of Mark 14, John tells us in verse 4 that it was Judas that was indignant about the woman wasting all this, uh, this, uh, this uh, precious ointment or this perfume on Jesus. John tells us that Judas didn't care a whit for the poor 
But in fact, because he was holding and in charge of the money bag, he was taking money out of the money bag. So he was really upset of the loss of income to him. He didn't care about the poor. He just realized that this huge amount of money worth a, a year's salary for someone, he could have been pilfering from, but he can't because now it's wasted, wasted on perfume to anoint Jesus. Immediately after that, as if that wasn't despicable enough, we see in verse 10 that Judas leaves to betray Jesus. And why does he do it? Because he's going to get some money. But shortly after that, verse 26, Peter shows up. And you see that particularly in verse 31, where Peter shows up insisting that he would never betray, deny, or abandon Jesus. And then immediately we see both Judas and Peter, do you notice that, in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see Peter failing Jesus in his time of need by falling asleep on him, and we read of Judas's treachery. Now, we, we can't miss this, and this is where I really encourage you, read large swaths of the Bible, because did you notice, if you were here last week, what, did the, what was the one warning, what was the one command that Jesus gave to His disciples? This is what you need to do in the coming days. What was it? Stay awake be awake, be on guard, and they're here falling asleep, asleep, asleep. You can't miss that Mark is trying to highlight probably the most important thing Jesus has to say to the disciples. They're already failing at in the next chapter. As if to fulfill Mark 13 verses 11 to 13, Judas betraying him, Jesus says, all men will hate you. They'll come against you, brother against brother, parent against child, child against parent, and here's one of his own betraying him, and here's his disciples falling asleep when he just told them to stay awake. And then finally, we read of Peter's betrayal of Jesus in the courtyard there in verses 54 to 72. So really what you have is Judas, then Peter, then Peter and Judas, and then again finally Peter. They, they, they form the kind of structure of this whole chapter. It begins with Judah's selfishness and betrayal of Jesus, and it ends with the self-interest of the disciples and Peter's betrayal of Jesus. So as I was reading Monday and just kind of going over and over and over again, there was this, if I had to describe this chapter in one word, I wrote the word down, abandoned, abandoned. Mark is careful to note that, that no one in this chapter, with the exception of Simon the leper and, and the prostitute, and, and we know that because Luke 7, uh, recording this event, talks about her and her trade. Outside of those two, nobody is faithful to Christ. Nobody is faithful. All the people that should have been faithful were faithless, and all the people who are typically faithless were faithful. Now, Mark is not trying to exalt uh, lepers per se and prostitutes per se. And I, I want to point that out because in our time, the antihero is really big. We, we always like to, we almost look down on the one that's the good guy and the righteous one, and we always like to cheer for the one that is the outcast but does what's right. Uh, that's endearing because of, I think, a biblical principle, but the Bible's not saying that lepers are inherently virtuous. Luke 17 reminds us, Jesus says, Did, didn't I heal ten lepers? Why is only one then grateful, right? Proverbs 5 and 7 talk about the dangers of prostitution and, 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 and falling into that. This is just what we're seeing here at the beginning is the consistent theme that the ones who remembered that they were diseased, that they were impure, 
the ones that were the outcasts and forgotten about, the ones who remember that because of Christ, they are now clean, they are now healed, they are now brought into God's people. It is those who remember that, that what they once were and what now God has made them, they tend to be the ones to show the greatest devotion, loyalty, and sacrifice to the Lord. But by and large, when we read this chapter, outside of that, that, that gl- momentary glimpse, we ask the question, who betrayed the Lord, who deserted Christ in His time of need? The answer is clear, His own people, His intimate companions, His disciples, His followers. And as if to put a, an exclamation point on this dynamic, notice what verse 50 says, and they all fled and left him. There's even this odd autobiographical insertion in verse 51, which we believe this is Mark's only appearance in the gospel of Mark, that he himself even abandoned Christ. And and there's a sense in which we, we wonder there was a repentant remorse, but remembering, and we'll talk about this, this is the nature of humans to do this. Because if you know the book of Acts, Mark, who is the author of Mark's gospel, he abandoned the work. Remember Acts 13, 13, when John wanted to take the gospel and and John Mark said, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm tired. Whatever the reason was, he abandoned the work. Of course, they reconciled, Acts chapter 15, verse 38, they reconciled. But you wonder, as Mark wrote this gospel, if he started to see a trend in his own heart that I tend to abandon the Lord, and, and I did it back then. And he inserts this very obscure verse of him abandoning the Lord along with everyone else. To to highlight the point, let me just show you a couple verses that are just gripping statements. These are typically the last sentence of each section of Judas or Peter. Notice verse 11, and he, Judas, sought an opportunity to betray Christ, portray him. Verse 31, here's Peter speaking for the disciples, if we must die with you, we will not deny you. Then verse 42, Jesus speaking of Judas, my betrayer is at hand. Verse 50, and they all left him and fled, speaking of Peter and the disciples. And then finally, verse 72, speaking of Peter, he just broke down and wept when he realized the truth of his own heart. For you note-takers, in some sense, friends, Peter and Judas could not be further apart from one another, but in the end... They did the same thing, didn't they? They did the same thing. They abandoned Christ. The only difference between Judas and Peter, excuse me, one of the only differences was that Judas intended to do so and Peter didn't. But practically speaking, the result was the same. They both left Christ. They both broke His heart. And this is kind of what I want to zero in on here, uh, right, for the time being. How can two men, how can two women who have completely different intentions, opposite intentions, in fact, end up doing the exact same thing? This chapter is a great study of human psychology in this. How can people who, who have the exact opposite intentions end up doing the same kind of thing? And I think the reason that's important is because I would like to think that there isn't anybody in this room, who in this church, who would willingly, intentionally deny Christ. We're actually not even sure what was going on in Judas's mind 
Because Matthew 27, verses 3 and 5, show us that, that Judas says, I have betrayed innocent blood. He throws the money back. They don't take the money back. He's full of remorse and then goes out and commits suicide. We're not even sure Judas was understanding what was going on at the time. So the question we want to ask is, if this can happen to the disciples, and we're going to be honest with ourselves, what does that mean about me? If this can be true of people who walked with Jesus for three years, saw His miracles, listened to His teaching, had, I mean, can you imagine being able to be with Jesus for three years and still abandon Him? If this is true of them, what are the temptations in my heart that can lead me to do the same? That's what we want to talk about. Because if you're a Christian, this has radical, radical application for our lives. That the deceptive nature of sin, the deceptive nature of sin and our radical need for grace, that, that is what we've got to come to grips with in Mark 14. I think that's what's coming out here. So, so let's look at the second, second aspect, Judas and Peter, that help us understand the motives of the human heart. Now, since their actions and words are the most prominent in this chapter, we want to ask that, that question, what is causing them to abandon Jesus? What was the temptations that pushed them in one direction or another? Because are those temptations alive in my life? Now, we have to be very careful when we're doing this kind of thing because we don't have any kind of spirit-anointed insight into the thoughts and minds of, of Judas and Peter here. But if we're careful to look at the passage and look at other scriptures, we can learn a thing or two and start to figure some things out. Let's look at Judas first. What, what might have motivated him? What might have drove his heart? John chapter 12, verse 6 gives us some pretty good insight. Mark 10, 14, uh, 14 10 also does. Judas wanted money. He was stealing from the money bag. We don't know how long he was stealing, but John 12, 6 tells us he would take money out of the money bag. The reason he was upset that this woman made this sacrifice is because that was a huge amount of money, and he was the one overseeing the money, and he could have had access to it. And he betrayed Jesus to get more money. We saw that right there in Mark 14, 10. Friends, money is one of the main things that will cause us to deny Christ to abandon Christ, the pursuit of money, the love of money. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, right? Beware of the love, not money itself, but beware of the love of money. Money is not inherently evil. I know many people do good things with money, but Paul says that love of money because it's the root of all kinds of evil, right? Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, notice, if you're a note-taker, write down Hebrews 13.5. Notice the reason the author of Hebrews says what he says. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? He follows it up with this statement. Because Jesus has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, the antidote to human greed, the antidote to greed is to be gripped gripped by the immense value and worth of having Christ. The antidote to the greed in our hearts is to have the, be gripped by the value of having Christ Himself. And the sad thing is, Judas had Christ, but in his foolishness, that wasn't enough. He wanted money, and so he sold Jesus for money. So maybe what was driving Judas was the almighty dollar and that's what sold out Almighty God. Another thing that could have been driving Judas, what could motivate him, 
was anger, right? Judas may have been angry, angry at Christ when he realized, you're not the political military leader I thought you were. When, when I left everything behind and followed you, I thought I was hooking myself up to the gravy train, and now you're telling me about die to myself and crucified, you're going to be crucified and turn the other cheek? That's not what I signed up for. That's not the Messiah I'm looking for. Now, maybe it didn't start with anger, it started with disappointment, right? But he, he, Judas didn't deal with his disappointment well, and then it morphed into anger, which disappointment often does. Right, friends, I, I call it the emotional unhelpful trinity, disappointment, anger, and hurt. Because here's the thing, wherever you find one of these, disappointment, anger, or hurt, you're bound to find the others as well. That, that's just, that's just the, these kind of emotions cluster together. Friends, ask yourself, is there in your heart disappointment? at God? Is there in your heart disappointment at people? Is there in your heart anger towards other people or God? Is there hurt in your heart towards God or other people? If that's there and you're, and you're not dealing with it, that's planting the seeds of you turning your back on Christ. That's just, that's just do, all, the, all the counseling I do, I call that the unhelpful emotional trinity, and it's there. Friends, if you find that there is disappointment or anger or hurt in your heart, which when you think about it, what's the opposite of those things? What's the opposite of disappointment but hope, right? What's the opposite of anger but, 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 but peace? What's the opposite of, of hurt, forgiveness? Those are fruit of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, that's what you need to be bearing. But if you're harboring and nurturing these, that will lead you to deny Christ. So, my friends, if, if you find that any of that is in your heart, make a commitment to deal with it. Or make a commitment to talk to somebody to deal with it. Because we see Judas harboring that bitterness, that, that disappointment that led to anger, that led him to abandon his Lord. What about Peter? Let's take a look at Peter. Peter, very different than Judas, right? Very different. What, what, what did we see in Peter that might have tempted him, that might have motivated him? Clearly you see in verse 31, Peter, and this is why we love him, he had a ton of confidence, didn't he? It, all, it bordered on hubris. No, no, Jesus, even if all these guys, all these, all these guys abandon you, I am not going to do that. Even if they all do, if I have to die, I'm going to die for you. Not a, not a thought that his confidence was confidence in the flesh and overconfidence. Friends, sometimes a strength is twice the weakness, yeah? An unguarded strength is twice the weakness. Are there areas in your life that you're so strong that you're no longer vigilant or vigilantly, diligently, I'll use that, diligently looking over because you are very confident that nothing's going to happen? Years ago, uh, I was talking to some guys on staff and just dealing with kind of discord and unfaithfulness in a lot of people's lives we're dealing with, talking about our, our relationships. And one of my friends just, you know, drops a bomb. He says, yeah, I'm probably about six months from adultery. We're like, whoa, wait, do we need to, is this an intervention? Do we need to engage what's going on here? And as we talked about it, at first I thought, what in the world's wrong with you? And then I thought, boy, I, you're, this is right. He wasn't saying, I, I'm, I'm planning this out and, you know, I'm just tired of what's going on. So I'm about six months away from committing adultery. What he was saying is, 
I have so set up my life, I've got accountability, I'm in the Word, I've got a structure around me that it would take six months of constant, deliberate, intentional temptation coming after me and after me and after me. It'll take six months to punch through all of that before I'm at that point. What seemed to be a really bizarre statement turned out to be a man that humbly knew the wickedness of his own heart and was being very intentional to guard against it always recognizing that I too can be given into any temptation or any sin. I'm not above these things. In a sense, he understood what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man, but God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. My friend, because he's aware that he can commit adultery, is all the more sure he won't be committing adultery. Friend, is there an unguarded strength in your life? If there is, then that's a weakness. And we see that in Peter, the hubris, the confidence, the, yeah, that's what we love about Peter. Ready, fire, aim, you know, and it derailed him. If it wasn't that, if it wasn't his overconfidence, maybe it was fear of man. That sure seemed to be the case, right, in, in verses 66 to 72, when, the, you know, here we have confident Peter, and here's a servant girl, and he buckles to her, the fear of man. I know that's a, a weird statement. Uh, you might think, well, I don't struggle with the fear of man. I think that's a phrase we need to, as Christians, bring back into our vocabulary because it's a wonderful concept that… that is all over our modern society. Do you care too much about what people think of you? That's the fear of man, right? Do, do you find yourself seeking to get people's approval? That's the fear of man. Do you find like, I, I want to be in this in-group because then I'll have validity, and because I'm not in that in-group, I feel like I'm just mad. That's the fear of man. Conversely, do, when your kids misbehave and you start worrying about what other people are going to think, guess what? That's the fear of man, right? Or when you see other kids misbehaving, do you get proud because your kids don't? That's the opposite of the fear. That's the flip side of the same thing, fear of man. The idea that I care what you think about me more than what I really am or what God thinks about me, that's the fear of man. Do, do, do you make excuses, justify, blame shift when you're late, when you make a mistake, when someone finds out you're less than the perfect image you want to portray and you start quickly trying to keep your image going, that's the fear of man. When you're always trying to rationalize why you couldn't do what you should have done or something like that, that's the fear of man. Proverbs tells us that the fear of man is a snare. But notice what it says, but the one who trusts in the Lord is safe. You know why? They know what our women have been learning this weekend. Their identity is not in their performance, whether or not they're accepted, whether or not they're the best, whether or not they're the, the coolest, the hippest, the youngest, whatever it might be. Their identity is, my sins have been forgiven. I'm a son or daughter of the king, and I'm loved by God. And my very limitations will bring him glory if I have the humility to recognize this is why I need God. It's because I'm not perfect. How many times in our hearts do we abandon God because of the fear of man? And we see that in Peter. 
The truly frightening, frightening reality of Mark 14, though, my friends, is that when you think about it, these are like garden variety sins and temptations, aren't they? I mean, none of these are like super missile bullets that the enemy had to get to bring down a disciple. He just looked in his toolbox, anger, oh, that's a good one, self-confidence, fear of man, I'll just use these and watch these guys fall. And if this could happen to Jesus' disciples, it could certainly happen to us. Regardless of what our conscious intentions might be, Peter had no intention to abandon Christ, but he did. You may have no intention to abandon Christ, but will you? Maybe not externally, it doesn't start there, right, but internally. And the reason I can say that with confidence is it's not because I know any particular one of you are thinking of a particular thing, but here's the, the, the gist of Mark 14. Abandoning God is the essence of human sin. Friends, look at all through Scripture. Abandoning God, that's just what we do because of sin. I mean, you can go back as early as Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was good for food and a delight to the eyes and a desire to make one wise. They abandoned God's Word that was very clear to them, and they did that. Look at Exodus chapter 32 when God's bringing the people out and apparently just taking too long. The people were too impatient. Man, God's taking too long. Let's go, let's get another God that'll do what we want. So they abandon God. Numbers 14, when he brings them up to the promised land and they see the, the, the problems of the challenges before them, rather than trust in God and his promises, they abandon God. This is too hard. I don't want to have to do this. They abandon God. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, the Lord says to Samuel the prophet, Samuel, don't worry, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So give them that king that they want, because it's not you they're rejecting, they're rejecting me. They abandon God. 2 Samuel 11, 2 Kings 11, David abandons God for Bathsheba. Solomon abandons God, abandons God for all the gods of his wives. This is the theme all through the Bible. And remember our study of the minor prophets, what was the major message that they had. I used Joel and Zechariah to, to highlight it, but there was all through the Bible, all through the minor prophets, return, come back, return. That implies that there has been a leaving and abandoning. What is the first word that the gospel opens with in Mark's gospel? It's repent, turn around, make a 180. Abandoning God is what the human heart does. And Mark 14 exposes the human heart. He's, he's, this is the trajectory of humanity. We just abandon God. Friends, this is, I wanna, I'm going to set this up. This is the radical, the radical nature of sin. We may not even intend to do it, but because we're so unaware of sin's subtle, savvy influence, we give in to it. Friends, the more you're not thinking about sin's powerful influence in your life, the more it has free reign in your life. If you think you're not daily impacted by the effects of sin, that thought itself is proof that it has. Let me say that again, guys. And, and, and please, I'm not bringing this up to bring you down. The reason I'm saying this is that you see your need for the grace that's daily available in the gospel. Until you recognize the danger you're in, you don't look for rescue. And the Bible's making it clear here in Mark 14 that sin is deceptive and our nature is to turn away from God. So Mark's highlighting that, but like a jeweler who always presents the best diamond on black velvet, 
because the brilliance of the light shows so strongly against the darkness of the velvet. Mark is showing us the brilliance of God's love against the blackness of humans who abandon him all the time. Because even though we've abandoned him, guess what? This is what we're looking at. God does not abandon us. God does not abandon us. John the Apostle says, we can love not because we can pull ourselves up by the moral bootstraps and just bear down to do it. No, the order is important. He says, we can love because what? Christ first loved us. Christ makes the move. And we see because Christ moves towards us, we don't have to give in to anger, fear of man, self-confidence, all those things. We don't have to give in the, tra the trajectory of human nature because Christ has moved towards us. And that's what we want to conclude with. Jesus helping us understand the plan and love of God through this chapter. Friends, through the whole chaos of this chapter, through the whole chaos of abandonment that we see happening everywhere, and we haven't even gotten into the, the sense of loneliness Christ must have felt, yeah? I mean, think about this. He is fully man like you and I, truly man, to have everyone only concerned about themselves, Everyone in this whole chapter is only concerned about himself, and yet Jesus, in the midst of it all, he's in control. He's in control. He's not a mere victim of our abandonment. He, he's not some impotent, impotent causality of our vices or casualty of our vices. He is completely in control, a willing substitute and sacrifice for us all. Now, it's hard to see that because our betrayal is so obvious, but let's go look at the passage in Mark 14 and see it. Look at verse 21. As Jesus is talking to, uh, to, to his disciples, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Okay? Then look at verse 27, a few verses down. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written. Look at verse 30, and Jesus said to Peter, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So what's he doing? He's, like, he's not just watching events unfold. Jesus knows this is God's plan. I'm in the middle of it, and this is happening as, uh, as it's supposed to be. I'm even telling you this. This is going to happen. You're going to do this. And yet he's in. He is all in. He doesn't waver. But boy, boy, get to verse 36. Get to verse 36 when Jesus is in the garden. And, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Okay, so I said Jesus is not wavering. He's not wavering here, but we will be misreading this. We will not understand the love of God and the love of Christ if we forget he is struggling. Abba, Father. And it says it, he prayed this prayer constantly. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. I don't want to have to go to the cross for them. I didn't do anything. I, didn't, I don't deserve what's coming. I didn't do any of this. I don't feel like doing this. I am so grateful that our Lord was not driven by his feelings, but was driven to be faithful to the commands of God. Friends, how are you? How's your Christian life? Is your Christian life driven by your feelings, what you feel like doing? Or are they driven by being faithful to the commands of God? 
Because feelings, I love them. I'm an emotional guy. You see me, I'm, I'm half the time weeping when I'm up here. I'm an emotional guy. But feelings make beautiful servants, but they're horrible taskmasters, right? Let's put them in the right place. Feelings are beautiful things as servants, but they are horrible taskmasters. And if our Lord was driven by his feelings, things would have been different. But look what happens at verse 36. This is possible to you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Friends, right here, right at this point, this is like holy ground. You got to take off your shoes because you're like, what am I reading? What you are reading is sin was forgiven, heaven was secured, joy was restored, and peace was won for the sinner who trusts in Christ. Right there at verse 36. That's where the action took place, where heaven was made possible for sinners like you and me where joy could be restored, where peace, where there was only war could be won right there because he was more concerned to be faithful to the Father than how he felt. And look at verse 62. We're going to wrap up with this. This whole, I mean, the irony of that, let me put my shoes on because I think the front row is getting a little smelly with these things on. Um, the irony of this, this mockery of a trial. Guys, Jesus Christ standing on trial. You couldn't get something more perverse, more deformed, more wrong than God being judged by man. Of course, we see that done. We do that too all the time, don't we? We put God on trial, but here it is in all its ugliness, and they're questioning Jesus. And look what happens in verse 61, 62. Finally, they lose it. The high priest, um, have you no answer to make? Jesus remains silent, and the high priest says, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is making God's plan a reality. So Jesus is securing, even though we've abandoned him, Jesus is making that grace available to us on a daily basis right here. And this is so rich, I didn't want to mess it up, so I just, I'm going to quote it. It's from the Gospel Transformation Bible. Jesus stands, and we'll end with this quote, before the council and is accused. In this moment, we are reminded of the accusation which we ourselves justly deserve. Yet Jesus remains silent before the religious leaders here so that he ever after might speak for us. We deserve the judgment he received, yet he did not defend himself, even though he rightfully could have. As, this, as the hymn says, in our place condemned he stood. The heart of the gospel is being expressed here, substitution. God in Christ took our place of condemnation, and we receive freely the gift of acquittal. Reflecting on the magnanimous love of God shown in the gospel, our hearts are moved with fresh wonder. Friends, Mark 14 is Jesus abandoned. Next week, Mark 15 is Jesus crucified. The week after that, Mark 16, Jesus resurrected. And in each chapter, we are reminded that Jesus does all this for you and for me. He was abandoned and crucified so we wouldn't have to be. He was raised from the grave on our behalf because we couldn't. He does it all for you and me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Word of God that reveals our hearts. It's, it's amazing, the gospel, Lord, that 
Something that could condemn me so justly can also fill me with such joy because that's only possible because of the cross. Lord, that I don't have to hide behind, we don't have to hide behind our reputations, our performance, and how good we might think we are or others think we are. We can admit, I am a sinner. I am one that abandoned Christ, and I am the one that put you on the cross. Father, until we see the cross as something done by us, we can never appreciate it as something done for us. Father, help us to realize that it was done by us, but it was done for us as well. That we might rejoice knowing that the burden of sin is lifted from our shoulders and that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. This is the gospel, Lord. Help our lives, help it to be the star that our lives orbit around. Help us to see the value of that, to overflow to the way we live and love our families and serve our people, our communities. May we be gripped with the gospel story. Praise the Lord. More mercy, Father, stronger than the darkness, new every day. Father, we thank you for that secured by Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.